0: This is American Resistance, a mini-series highlighting the people and stories from David Rothkopf's latest book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Hello, and welcome to another in the special series of podcasts we are doing focusing on some of the leading players in my book, American Resistance. Today, I'm really Glad that we are joined by Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, As all of you know, Dr. Fauci is director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the U.S. National Institutes of Health and is the chief medical advisor to President Joe Biden. He has been a key advisor to seven presidents and their administrations on a wide range of issues, including global HIV-AIDS issues and on initiatives to bolster medical and public health preparedness. Against emerging infectious disease threats. And that included, of course, COVID, which is the area that we talked about in the book. Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Good to be with
0: you. Let me begin with a framing question. The relationship between scientists and politicians is complicated. Science is fact based, politics is often based on other factors, ambition, trying to read the crowd. You've been dealing with that tension between the two approaches for, I guess, about 40 years. How, in your mind, has it evolved? Has it evolved at all? Do we treat or have we in the recent past treated science differently than perhaps we did when you were getting started?
1: You know, I think it's important to note that I don't think there is a pattern of evolution of something getting better and better or worse and worse. It really depends on a couple of conflating issues. One, the particular public health issue that is at hand at a given time. For example, in the 80s, it was heavily weighted towards HIV. And then we had pandemic flu in 2009. And then we had the Ebola, which was less a problem in the United States, but more of how we viewed the threat to the United States. And then We have the situation of a completely historic and transforming pandemic with COVID-19. So it depends on what the circumstance is, but it also depends on the degree to which a particular administration inserts politics into the scientific discussion and the scientific dialogue. As we all know, it's recently come out literally over this past week, the uh, reporting of the influence during the Trump administration on trying to influence what the CDC said in some of their reports, their morbidity, mortality weekly report. That is an example of a direct interference of political agenda in public health. But even in any administration, there's always a tinge of political considerations. that usually don't Dramatically or substantially impact what you ultimately decide from a scientific policy issue. So, you know, the distinction between policy and politics, but you know, you sometimes have to make policy based on what the current public health or scientific situation is. And I think there may be a little bit of that that's non interfering. And then every once in a while you get something. That really is in conflict, which is what we've had, unfortunately, in the earlier years of the COVID outbreak. It
0: seems to me this these revelations that you just mentioned with regard to CDC are fairly egregious in terms of that tension area. How you know, or when in the unfolding of the COVID saga. Did you realize this administration was going to, the Trump administration was going to end up treating it somewhat differently than other administrations had been?
1: Or did you? It was pretty clear. It evolved and then it became obvious. And that had to do with when we were making the recommendations that, with the crises that we were facing throughout the country, but particularly initially in the first three months of the outbreak when New York, particularly New York City, got very severely hit, and it was threatening the integrity of the healthcare delivery system that we needed to do something that was inevitable, and that was to try and flatten the curve by the 15-day shutdown, followed by a 30-day extension. All that went pretty smoothly until it became clear that the balance between the pure public health considerations and the pressure on impacting the economy and the political implications of that in an election year, right about that time was the turning point when the attention towards controlling the outbreak became secondary to the attention towards making sure the economy isn't hurt as we approach the months leading to the election. So that's when things started to turn around. But, you know, it's interesting because as we discussed in,
0: in doing the book and as talking to others involved in the process confirmed. That that tension arose, particularly in kind of late February, early March of 2020. I, I think the president went to the Center for Disease Control. He said this was going to be easily under control. He specifically said, let's not count the data. He didn't want to let a cruise ship dock. You know, he didn't want to get blamed for that. And so it was was clear he was conscious of it. And yet it was just a couple of weeks later that you were able to launch the, the 15 days to stop the spread. So how did folks deal with that tension behind the scenes? Because it seems to me, and the part of what was revealed in the book is, There were a lot of professionals behind the scenes, including some political appointees who were working to sort of counterbalance the effort to play politics with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly there were many people that were trying to separate the politics from the pure public health issues. I thought that we were on a good track when it was accepted the 15 day flattening the curve, followed by the necessity, which we all recognized when we put in, and this was the work that Debbie Burks was very much involved with, was giving the Public Health Foundation for why it was necessary to extend into 30 additional days. And Dr. Burks and I both thought that we had the full support of the White House. In that regard. And we felt very good about that. And then out of nowhere came a turnaround that we're not quite sure why or how that happened, because then instead of supporting what we were doing, which is what was happening initially, the president started talking about things like liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia. In other words, don't adhere to the shutdown and just open up and do what you want to do, then we found ourselves at cross-purposes. That was the beginning of the real um, palpable tension between the public health message and the message that was founded on economic considerations and political considerations related to the upcoming election.
0: What what is your sense of the source of that tension? Was it just the political people saying, hey, there's an election coming up and this is going to hurt us? Was it the president himself? I mean, Fox News to this day is advocating against taking vaccines, which seems kind of astonishing. And there were also, it seems, around the president kind of people peddling crank solutions. Did you find yourself in a kind of tug of war between you know those folks and the public health folks, to, you know from then on.
1: I think we need to distinguish between the crank stuff and the stuff that is understandable. I mean, I and my colleagues, uh, I was particularly visible about that, was pushing back against the hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. This is all going to go away overnight. A dialogue that. Put a tremendous amount of tension between me and the White House staff, not necessarily the president. I don't think he liked it, but it was more the staff. That's really different than the economic people who were telling the president that this was damaging to his political standing by shutting down things that might have a negative impact on the economy. Of course, that's not quacky stuff. That's just political issues and understandable political issues. I mean, if we if I was an economic advisor, I probably would have been in, you know, telling the president the dangers on upon the, the economy. So that's very different from somebody who's whispering in the president's ear, saying that this drug works and that drug doesn't work, and this one you should be peddling. There really are differences there. One of the tensions that existed had to do with should
0: assistance be provided equally between blue and red states? And, um, and because of that tension, you and others with the, within the administration, uh, within the process with whom I spoke, found that sometimes they were dealing directly with governors, directly with mayors. To disintermediate this political element, is that a fair assessment i mean
1: well i you know i I wasn't privy on all of the interactions that went from the White House to individual governors and individual mayors, but certainly there was communication by the president to um, the state and local leadership, particularly governors and to some extent mayors, but mostly governors. And it's very clear where the favoritism was. I mean, uh, that was pretty obvious because the governors, the Republican governors were very, very openly and behind the scenes supportive of the president, as you might expect. One of the things that struck me
0: is, and frankly, one of the reasons for the book, and you're a big inspiration for this, is that there were actually thousands of people behind the scenes, including senior people, working to handle this in a responsible way. And so there was progress made. There was progress made on vaccines. There was the 15 and then the 30 days you know, additional to stop the spread. My experience, and one of the reasons I ended up writing this book, is most of the people who work in Washington are good people. Most of the people who work in the government are good people. They could work someplace else, make a lot more money. They don't. You have a lot of experience dealing with the kind of people who have been attacked as the deep state, as the permanent government. And I'm just wondering what your reaction is to that.
1: No, I agree with you completely that the overwhelming majority of the people who are involved in government, even political appointees, are people who want to do the right thing. And I think there may be some misperception, and I've actually publicly said this on multiple occasions, that the all or none judgment that everybody that was involved in the Trump White House at multiple levels was not a good person, and that's wrong. There were some very, very good people, even at the highest levels, who were trying to do the right thing. And it just didn't go that way, as we all know, particularly towards the end there. But I worked with a number of people in the Trump administration who were really fine people and should be proud of what they've done. They You shouldn't denigrate an entire group just because of certain things that went awry at the very top level.
0: I think one of the, you know, it's it's possible to get wrapped around the axle talking about what went wrong. but Clearly, and this has been the story of your career, we're going to face this kind of thing again and again. You know, the Obama administration ended up putting together a plan post-Ebola to deal with this. The Trump administration set that aside and came at a high cost. The Biden administration came in as it happened. The White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, was the guy who oversaw that Ebola process. And I think they tried to Put us back on the right track of preparedness. How would you characterize the change, and do you think that's right?
1: Yeah, that's about right. Right now we we have a, a pretty good pandemic preparedness type plan. You know it's interesting because you have a pandemic preparedness plan at the same time you're responding to a historic pandemic. So you have two things going on at the same time. you're trying to respond appropriately to the ongoing challenge of the existing pandemic at the same time that you realize that this likely will happen again, we don't know exactly when, and we're in the process of putting together, which we have is a very good pandemic preparedness plan, the only glitch in this is that we don't have the resources right now, given all of the resources that have already been put into The response to COVID, you know, billions of dollars that the Congress is not amenable to giving us a lot more for pandemic preparedness, given the amount that was already given. So there's that tension now that's existing between what the the administration, namely the Biden administration, is asking for to continue both the response to the current pandemic and the preparation for what might be ahead. We still have to see how that's going to play out because we're in the middle of those discussions.
0: Yeah, I've talked to some senior officials about that who advocate the plan, feel it's important. And I think they're pretty pessimistic. I think they're pretty pessimistic that the funds are going to be provided. And I just wonder if, you know, we're going to go through COVID, which was a transformational experience in the life of the country and the world and come out the other side and be caught flat-footed by the next thing
1: Well I share your concern because I too am relatively pessimistic that we are going to get the resources that are necessary to be able to respond to the next challenge you know the the resources I tend to look at them in two major buckets. One is the the fundamental science that is the basis for the ability to respond with novel vaccines the way we did with the mRNA and immunogen design for the highly successful COVID vaccines. That was the result of more than a decade and a half to two decades of investment in basic and clinical biomedical research. The other one that didn't do too well, the scientific response was the success story of the response to COVID. The failings, even though there were some successes, but the failings was in the public health preparedness at the local level, which we let really uh, essentially diminish in its capability over years and years. And we really need to continue to build that up again because we're not going to be ready, even though it's interesting that we were judged to be the best prepared country in the world. And yet, proportionately speaking, when you talk about cases and deaths, we've done worse than most any other country, which is kind of interesting and tells you a bit about our healthcare system.
0: As we talked about when, when I was working on, on, on this book, you know, I have some background dealing with public health. I was on the advisory board of the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. I've studied how public health was adapted over the course of the 20th century and the degree to which progress in this regard led to more substantial gains in life expectancy and quality of life than even you know, drug breakthroughs. And yet... Going through the COVID process, we have seen something that we didn't really see before, which is gross politicization. So, you know, when when the flu hit in 1918 and people passed measures to say you've got to wear a mask, that happened. It was fairly successful. The U.S. was less impacted by the 1918 flu than other countries. We were more impacted in some cases by COVID, and we, you know, you've seen all the breakdowns where. It shows that red counties did worse than blue counties. We continue to be in a pose where public health measures are now sort of vilified and they continue to be politicized. And, you know, as much as lack of preparedness could be a problem, it seems to me this continuing politicization could be a problem. What's your view of that?
1: Well, I feel very strongly that that is one of the most important problems. In fact, it overshadows the inadequacies of preparation. The idea that we have a profound degree of divisiveness in society to me is the enemy of an adequate public health response. Without a doubt, I feel very strongly that way. In fact, if you take a look at a very telling graph that came out about a week or so ago where they showed The deaths due to COVID among Democrats and Republicans, prior to the availability of vaccines, they were about even. Then as soon as the vaccines became available and the Democrats utilized them much more than Republicans, deaths due to COVID were heavily weighted towards Republicans as opposed to Democrats. That should never, ever be a situation in public health where morbidity and mortality is heavily weighted towards people based on their political ideology. That is so antithetical to an adequate public health response that it's, it's just mind-boggling. But that's what we're seeing. And as I mentioned earlier, we continue to see it. Fox
0: last night had people on saying, you know, doubting the effect, efficacy of, of vaccine's But as my my final question, and and you know, talk about this to the degree to which you feel comfortable, you know, part of the political mood of this country, part of the division that you one can associate with the results you just talked about, is also associated with a kind of extremist, violent, ugly dimension to U.S. politics, and and you've felt it personally. You've been targeted personally. By the right, you know you've been through this a lot. It wasn't like things were smooth sailing all through the HIV/AIDS crisis in the '80s. There, that was politicized too. How how is this, you know, different? What is your your just your own takeaway from from living through that?
1: Oh, it's totally totally different because if you look back at the confrontation of the activist community with authority, they were doing it because they wanted to gain the attention of the people in responsible positions in both science and regulation as to why we were not addressing the HIV epidemic in a way that was really compatible with the best interests of the people who were afflicted or at risk. And they wanted to be part of the process of the decision-making both in the clinical trials and in the regulation, the very strict and rigid regulatory situation, which made it very difficult for persons with HIV or at risk to get into clinical trials. At the end of the day, those people who were confronting the government were actually correct in what they were doing, and they wanted to make the situation better. That is totally opposite from what we're seeing now, which are direct attacks on the scientific process, direct attacks on public health principles, which is so completely different than the AIDS activists of the eighties and early nineties. So I think when people say, well, you've had difficulties and you've been pushed back, no, no, no. One, ultimately we all agreed with each other because it was the right thing. I don't think there'll ever be an agreement That vaccines are bad, that you shouldn't be wearing a mask, that you shouldn't be caring about preventing infection. That is completely antithetical to public health. Thank you for that. And thank you for
0: taking the time to join me, Dr. Fauci. I I really appreciate not only this, but the time you spent talking to me for the book and for people who want to hear more, uh, by all means. Uh, I certainly don't want to discourage them from going out and getting American resistance. It's one of the best reasons (laughs) to get it. And um, we really appreciate your service and those who work with you on this. And, uh, you know, hope to talk to you again in the future.
1: Thanks, David. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Take care. Nice
0: talking to you.